0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 22. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie, and in this episode, I'll be performing five tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Renee Rain, about creepy cabins, burnt attractions, curious collectibles, deathly discussions, and cursed cats. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the Moonlit Trail... So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to get away from it all. Life becomes too overwhelming, or you just need to concentrate, get some things done you couldn't otherwise do. For one poet, some time at the cabin in the Alps is exactly the inspiration needed. Too bad, though, as we shall find out in our first tale by Rene Rain, it seems like there's always going to be somebody or something that has to keep things interesting. Without further ado, I present to you Something Unknown is Out There in the Alps, and it's coming for me. I always like to have a more secluded lifestyle. Reclusive even. It's not that I have social anxiety or anything. I guess I'm just not a people person. Don't get me wrong, I don't hate other people, but I'd rather not be around them. I like solitude and quietness. When an acquaintance offered to rent me his family mountain cabin for a few months, I agreed almost an instantly. By- The truth is, I'd been looking for an opportunity like this for a while now. Just a few months out in the middle of nowhere to work on my poetry, completely undisturbed. Unfortunately, I'd never found anything that fit my rather tight budget. The cabin itself was located in a remote area of the Alps. There were some tourist spots nearby, but nothing within walking distance. The place was ideal for someone who wanted to be entirely on their own. It sounded absolutely perfect. I arrived at the cabin about a month ago. It was beautiful. I loved it the moment I set foot inside. While I settled in, I started a small fire to heat up the place. For the first couple of days, I had a hard time writing anything worthwhile. All the lines I came up with didn't feel right. Instead of brooding over my work, I decided to explore the outside area. The snow-covered plains, the mountains, and the many forests painted a beautiful panorama. Out here, things were different, untouched. I wandered around for hours and tried to absorb as much of nature's beauty as I possibly could. Work went well after this little trip outside. Nature had always been one of my prime inspirations. From that day onward, I'd often spent a good part of the day outside, going on extensive walks. Only when the sun started to set did I actually sit down and work on my poetry. Many times I discovered the tracks of animals outside. Some were small, most likely left by rabbits. Others were bigger, hinting at deer. I rarely stumbled upon signs of other humans. There were a few lonely tracks here and there. They were most likely left by hikers or mountain climbers passing through the area. My acquaintance was right. I was completely alone out here. That was until two weeks ago. I set out one day for another walk when I stumbled upon many new tracks. They were clearly human, but it had to be a whole group. Their tracks were chaotic, going here and there as if they were stumbling into one another. I frowned when I saw them and hoped that they were already gone and on their way. As so often is, luck wasn't on my side. It was a day later that I found more of the same tracks. They were as chaotic as before, but now they were much closer. Whoever they were, they seemed to linger around the area. Maybe they were camping out here for some reason. Once more, I frowned. I went out here to get inspired, not to see their stupid tracks all over the place. Worst of all, they didn't seem to care about nature at all. They had almost left a clear path behind on their way through the woods. There were markings on some of the trees and branches, and twigs were littered on the path. For the next couple of days, I found more and more signs of this ominous group. It was a bit strange, though, that I never saw any of them. I shrugged it off and decided it was best to ignore them. When the noises started, though, things took a turn for the worse. When you live in a city, noises are a normal part of life. You know that it's your neighbor or kids playing outside. Out here in the middle of nowhere, It was an entirely different story. It was about 11 in the evening when the noise started. I sat at my desk with a mug of hot tea working on my latest poem. Suddenly, I heard something outside. It was distant, but I could clearly make out the voices. I put my pen down and went to one of the windows. I racked it and listened, but I couldn't understand a word. They were yelling and shouting. What the hell were they up to? For a moment I thought about yelling out in the night, but then I decided it was better to lay low. The noise went on for a while longer before it thankfully died down. The next day I realized that the group hadn't been out in the woods alone as I'd thought. No, the moment I stepped outside, I saw the many chaotic tracks right in front and all around the cabin. I couldn't help but be crept out. Why had they come here? they watched me? A bit unnerved, I scanned the area in the woods around the cabin. Was someone nearby right now? I quickly went back inside. I didn't go for a walk that day. For the first time since I'd arrived, I realized that I was completely isolated. There was no one nearby at all. For a moment I thought about calling the police, but what would I tell them? That I found a bunch of tracks outside in front of the cabin? Yeah, right, they'd tell me to call them again if something actually happened. No way they'd come up here because of a few random tracks. I was antsy all day, but when the sun set, I started to get more and more anxious. I tried to work, but the thought of someone watching the cabin made it almost impossible. Instead, I paced through the cabin, eyeing the area outside from various windows. I saw nothing. It was late in the evening when I heard the noise again. Once more, I cracked the window and listened. There were steps outside, many of them as if the group was rushing through the snow. They were so close to the cabin. A few times I saw someone move outside, but it was too far away, hidden by the darkness of the night. As I listened to the yells and shouts, It almost felt as if they were circling the cabin. Were they trying to find a way inside? I rushed to the front door, making sure it was locked, and then checked out all the windows. During all this time, the frantic movement and the shouting outside continued. Finally, I had it, and I called the cops. Told them exactly what was going on and that I was scared they might break into the cabin. It was about a half hour later that I saw the distant headlights of the police car. As the car got closer, the shouting stopped and the footsteps turned into nothing more than a faint echo. The annoyance of the two police officers was evident as soon as I opened the door. I could imagine they weren't all too happy to be out here in the middle of the night. I invited them inside and poured each of them a cup of tea. They didn't touch it at all. I carefully explained to them what had happened. The two of them listened, and I could see that their annoyance shifted to concern. After I'd finished, I led them outside, and with their flashlights, they scanned the area. There were so many tracks here by now, it was almost as if the snow surrounding the cabin had been flattened. I could hear one of them grumbling something about damned tourists, before they told me they'd have a look around the area. I thanked them multiple times and returned back inside. It was about an hour or so later that the two of them returned. They told me they'd found nothing but more of the same tracks. They led in circles through the forest, but there was no hint of the group I'd described. It was most likely a bunch of tourists trying to cause a bit of trouble. That type of thing had happened Most likely some college kids who were out here drinking and having a bit too much fun. Once someone calls the police, though, they know it's time to knock it off. They told me this was most likely the end of it. The group was most likely on their way in and wouldn't disturb me anymore. Before they left, one of them handed me his number and told me to give him a ring should they be back. Once again, I thanked them, but somehow their words didn't feel too reassuring. Somehow, I felt as if they were just trying to convince me nothing was wrong so they could finally get out of here. I was up for hours after they left. Only when morning came did I feel comfortable enough to go to sleep. When I got up, I thought about packing my things and leaving. Then I told myself that to stay here had been something I'd looked forward to for years. Should I really let a bunch of stupid college kids ruin it for me? No. I decided to stay. By now, I wish I'd left. I really wish I had. For the whole day, I went from window to window watching the woods outside. Eventually, I ventured outside myself to have a look around the cabin. Who knows? Maybe they were hiding nearby. The only thing I found was tracks from last night. By now, they were almost completely buried under the new snow. I couldn't even think of my work anymore. My mind was entirely absorbed by watching the area outside. As day turned to night, I hoped that the police had been right. Time passed and soon midnight arrived without any noise. The police must have scared them off. I'd finally calmed down and was about to heat up some tea when I heard something. Was the sound of footsteps in the snow. There were so many of them. As if dozens of people were out there. How big was this damn group? I was about to call the police when something heavy hit the cabin. What the hell was going on out there? What were these assholes doing? I rushed to one of the windows but only caught a glimpse of someone staggering off into the darkness. I waited to see if they'd be back, but soon there was another loud bang from the other side of the cabin. The shouts started again, or better, the screams. They sounded different now. Before, they'd seemed excited, but now they sounded agitated, almost terrified. For a moment, I stood there, shivering. What the hell was going on out there? Once more, I heard loud screams, this time, It was almost as if someone was calling for help. Were they trying to trick me? I went to the window and saw something again. People were moving outside, but I couldn't see it clearly. Their movement looked strange, almost as if they were stumbling through the snow. I couldn't see a thing in the darkness. Finally, I opened the window and called out to whoever was out there. What's going on? You all right out there? broke up as the source of the noise revealed itself and started moving towards me. The phone slipped from my hands and I stumbled backward. What was out there was indeed a group of people, or something resembling one. There were too many legs, too many arms. It was a twisting, writhing mess of human limbs and bodies all entangled into one another. For a moment I saw twitches all over it fusing bodies and limbs together into one giant abomination. Then I saw the faces. They were blind, eyes sewed shut, and their mouths wide open. Once more, they started screaming at me. No, those had never been screams of excitement. Those were screams of pure terror. I was on the ground staring at the window in front of me in sheer disbelief. Moments later, the group... No, the thing crashed against the wall of the cabin. A rain of glass exploded over me and I saw dozens of arms reaching out for me. No! Leave me alone! I screamed as I frantically crawled backward. All the thing's heads turned right into my direction. Again, the thing pressed itself against the small window opening. I saw hands clinging to the window frame and the wall as the creature tried to push itself inside. The mouths opened once more, screaming in terror again, and for the first time I understood their words. Help us. I could only watch as the thing continued its struggle more and more. Arms reached inside, pushing, twisting, ripping skin and flesh apart as the thing desperately tried to get inside. Then it suddenly stopped moving. Moments later, It let out another blood-curdling scream before it rushed off into the darkness. I don't know how long I sat on the floor. I was so utterly terrified that I just couldn't move. When I finally got to my feet, my legs were weak and shaky. I'd barely taken a few steps before they gave way. What had been that thing? How the hell can something like that even exist? For long minutes I lay on the floor, shaking, as the images of the abomination haunted my mind again and again. And its screams, oh dear god, what the hell was this? When I got up I was nervous and restless, I had to walk through the cabin to keep the panic at bay. Every once in a while I scanned the window for any signs of the creature, but it was gone, If for good I couldn't tell. After a while, I started questioning myself. Had no... uh, Could this even be real? Maybe I was suffering from cabin fever, or whatever people out here get. What if my paranoia had conjured up this twisted creature? As I turned around to the window, though, I saw the proof right there. The pieces of glass on the floor, the broken window, and the scratches all over the cabin wall. At this point, I remembered my phone. I looked around in confusion before I saw it right below the window. I took a step towards it, but then froze. What if that thing was still around? No, it had run off, I told myself. Once more, I anxiously listened for noises outside. All was quiet. I rushed forward, closed my hands around the phone, and almost threw myself back. Oh, thank God. I said out loud when I saw it was still working. It was right at this time that I heard the sound of distant steps again. I dialed the cops right away and told them that something out here was after me. It must have sounded like a total nutcase. They asked me if it was those college kids again. Instead of answering, I pleaded with them to come out here and save me. They told me to calm down, to stay indoors, and they'd be here as quick as possible waiting was pure torture i listened to every sound even the snow falling from the roof was enough to send another surge of panic into my brain i still couldn't stand still once more i paced through the cabin where the hell were they what was taking them so long god damn it when i checked my phone i saw that it hadn't even been a half hour yet but to me, it had felt like an eternity. can hurry up? What if that thing comes back? Those uh, steps outside, they were getting closer. They weren't those of multiple legs. They weren't frantic and chaotic. No, they were slow and deliberate. Oh, please tell me it's the police. Please. Suddenly, I heard something on the wall of the cabin again. It was as if something metallic was slowly scratched along the wall outside. I almost flipped out when I heard it. This was not normal. I cowered in fear at the sound and closed my eyes. Make it go away. Please make this thing go away. I was ripped from my terror by a knock on one of the intact windows of the cabin. The police. They finally made it. When I turned toward the window, though, my blood froze in my veins. Two huge, yellow eyes were staring at me, and long, bony fingers were still knocking against the glass. This was no police. This was no human. It was a giant, hulking figure that leaned down to look into the cabin. When I saw its face, I was reminded of the masks of plague doctors, but it was no mask. It was a grown-together mesh of skin, flesh, and bone. For a moment, the creature's head moved away, and I saw that it was holding something long and thin in his hand. Was that a a giant needle? Suddenly, I heard a car driving up to the cabin. In an instant, the giant figure crooked its head at the source of the noise, and with heavy steps, it walked in the direction of the police car. Moments later, the frantic sway of the headlights reached the front windows of the cabin. I stumbled forward as I heard the screams of the two police officers. Gunshots cut through the night, followed by the crunching of metal as the giant figure peeled the two men from the car. In horror, I watched as it scooped them up in his hand. I waited for it to crush them, but instead, it smiled and brought the needle to its mouth. Moments later, it pushed it into the flesh of the first man. When the screams of agony and terror reached my ears, the figure started to giggle. It was a high-pitched, distorted sound. For a moment, the terrible face turned and smiled towards me. Then it quietly walked off into the woods, sewing the two men in its grasp to one another. That was an hour ago. Since then, I started writing this all out to keep myself from giving in to utter despair. This was supposed to be a little getaway to work on my poetry, but it had turned into an absolute nightmare. Countless times I thought to make a run for it, but that thing is still out there. I can still hear its steps as it circles the cabin. There are still the screams of the two police officers. I know that this damn monstrosity is teasing me, preying on me, watching me. The night is still long and before it's over I know that this thing will be back
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well If you own a home you know how much work it can take whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs
1: I hope you enjoyed Something Unknown is Out There in the Alps and It's Coming For Me by author Renee Rain as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash rain. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash r-e-h-n. Find out more about his Reddit stories. uh, Follow him on Instagram or view him on Pinterest. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Renee a kind word and let them know that you heard about them here on this show and that Otis Jairi sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. As for our last story... It's interesting to find somebody who has unusual hobbies. Me? I just stick to a ball of rubber bands. But I will admit, sewing is a great way to meet people, and keep them around for a while too. <laughs> but maybe you're not one for isolation. Maybe just a trip to the Big Top, or a local attraction's all you need. Well, in our second story from Renee Rain, we have a new show in town with some wondrous sights to show you, and some sights you may want to avoid. Without further ado, I present to you the misery of Monsieur Delancey. Did you ever wonder why children see the world so differently? Why can they be so enchanted by the simplest and most mundane of things? I never bothered with things like Childhood was a thing of the past, and all its incredible sights had been replaced by logic and rationality. All that changed after my visit to the bizarre of Monsieur Delancey. I first heard about it in passing at a bus station. A group of students talked about a weird foreigner. The man had bought an old barn at the edge of town and refurbished it into some sort of attraction. I couldn't help but laugh a little. Why would anyone come here and set up shop was beyond me. Ours was a small town in the middle of nowhere with only a few thousand inhabitants. Yet the strange man's appearance soon became the talk of the town. Most people were ridiculing him or laughing at him. Some were showing open disdain and a select few were curious about him. He hadn't been in town longer than a week when he started posting flyers all over town. It wasn't much in terms of design and shoddy work at best. Want to rekindle your imagination? Want to see fantastical and magnificent creatures from around the world? Those and other phrases covered the front of a flyer. Above them all and written in bright letters was the name of the attraction. The Biserie of Monsieur Delancey. The back of the flyer showed a man clad in a dark, faded mantle. He was standing in front of a painted, wide-open barn door. As I stared at it, I couldn't tell what the man was supposed to be. A magician? A circus director? Or something else? And what about this Biserie? Either way, I didn't care. And so I threw the flyer away, just like everyone else did. Well, almost everyone. Some were more curious or had it out for the strange old man. One of those was Arthur Miller, a local teenager and troublemaker. One weekend, shortly after the bizzy opened, he and his friend got drunk, and Arthur decided to mess with the old man and wreck his crappy place, as he called it. Yet when they arrived there in the early morning hours, the man was waiting for them. He bid them to enter and marvel at sights they wouldn't believe. And so Arthur went in. No one knows what happened. His friends had been waiting for him outside, and after only half an hour, he stumbled from the place before he ran home in a state of utter terror. Rumors spread, but most of them were about Arthur. The kid used to call himself a tough guy, who wasn't afraid of anything or anyone. Yet, he ran from what everyone thought was nothing but a lousy haunted house. Arthur changed after his visit. It was jerky, jumpy, his eyes darting here and there as if he was searching for or looking at something. Whenever someone asked him or teased him about his visit, he'd said nothing. He didn't laugh, didn't make excuses, didn't even lash out at those who ridiculed him. Half a week after his visit, he walled himself off in his room, refusing to leave it. This, however, only worked in Monsieur Delance's favor, and more people began talking about the misery, and soon someone else visited the place. Clara was the type who never moved on after high school days, She was in her mid-forties now, still unmarried and perpetually lonely, latching on to any fun or excitement she could find. So, on a whim, she decided to find out what all the fuss was about. Her experience must have differed from Arthur's. The look of depression that had so marked her face was exchanged by one of bliss and sheer wonder. She didn't react to people talking to her, didn't answer questions, She just stumbled through town. She walked on and on, and still on, when night fell. The next day, however, she didn't show up at work, didn't leave her home, and similarly to Arthur, walled herself off from the outside world. This got people talking, of course. They grew weary of the misery and spoke in hushed whispers about having to get rid of the damn place. After what happened to Clint Milford, They weren't just whispers anymore. Clint was one of our town's drunks. I guess every town has them. Still, he wasn't a bad guy, just 50-something years old and a guy that life wasn't too kind to. Lost his job, his wife left, and took the kids. From then on, he spent most of his days drinking away his measly welfare money at the local bar. I knew Clint from when I was a kid, He used to teach at my local middle school before his life went down the drain. I saw him every once in a while when I was having a beer or two of my own. The day before he went, he was hanging with a group of younger people, local busy boys who had nothing better to do than to ridicule a broken man. Their topic that day was none other than the misery. At first, it was simple jokes. But before long, they pressed old Clint to go. At first he was against it, but at the prospect of free alcohol, he finally stumbled for the door. I thought about stopping him from going. I wish I'd done it. Four hours after his visit to the misery, they found his battered body at the riverbank. Suicide, the authorities concluded, after someone reported seeing him jumping off a bridge the authorities, who'd been watching the place with disdain ever since Arthur's visit, got involved. Monsieur Delancey was taken in for questioning, and his misery was turned upside down. Yet they found nothing. It was a cheap old barn divided into a multitude of different rooms, each featuring an assortment of cheap scares and equally cheap wonders of the world. There were no hidden mysteries, no catch, and no danger at all. One thing caught my interest, something the old man said during his questioning. It's not what's on display. It's the imagination that does the trick. In the end, they'd let him go, but forced him to close the place down. After all, a man had died, and two other people had shut themselves off from the world. Our town, they concluded, didn't need this sort of trouble. Still, all of this spurred a plethora of new rumors and many went to the place to see it for themselves. Monsieur Delancey sent them all away. The exhibition was closed for good and he'd soon move on. And that's how I came in. I worked for our local newspaper and eventually our boss wanted a story about the mysterious place and its enigmatic owner. My curiosity about the place had grown like everyone else's. But what made me volunteer was to find out the truth about what had happened not only to Arthur and Clara, but also to old Kurt. So that same day, I set out for the edge of town to pay Monsieur Delancey and his misery a visit. When I arrived, the old man was sitting on a chair next to the door reading from an old yellowed book. He looked up when he saw me walking towards him. His face was old and wrinkled the skin a map showing the passing of decades upon decades. Yet his eyes didn't seem old at all. They were a bright blue color and gleaming as brightly as the sky above us. Monsieur Delancey, I presume? None other than that. So, that's it then. I said more to myself than to him as I stared at the half-rotted barn behind him. Indeed it is. I walked up to the door, but he was quick to spread out his arm. I'm afraid I can't let you in, young man. The place is closed. Well, I'm not a customer. I'm with the local paper, a journalist, you could say. Monsieur Delancey's eyes focused on me. A man of the pen, I see. And you're here to write about the misery, I presume? Yeah. So, how about you give me a tour? Of course, not a regular one, but I'd like to learn a thing or two about what you do here. As I said the last thing, I couldn't help but stare the man down. He didn't seem to notice my disdain at all. Instead, his eyes darted left and right almost comically, as if to see if someone else was around. Now, how about this? You're not a customer, as you said. You're here to write a story, right? After all, the doors are closed. And you're only here for a brief interview. I nodded quickly. Yes, exactly. The old man rubbed his chin in what I could tell was a studied gesture. Then he nodded at me. Well then, come on, mister. He started giving me an expectant look. Stevenson, I answered. Well then, Mr. Stevenson, welcome to the misery of Monsieur Delancey. With that, he led me forward, not to the front door, but a smaller one, hidden at the side of the barn. They told me to keep the entrance shut well and good, but this here, he said, grinning, ain't no entrance. The man rummaged through a pocket in his giant mantle before he produced a key ring. There had to be a dozen keys on it, and I couldn't help but wonder how heavy the damn thing must be. He went through the keys with curious eyes until he found the right one and unlocked the door. We entered a small hallway divided up from the rest of the barn by a cheap wooden wall barely high enough to keep you from looking over it. This here is where I bring in all the specimens. Those magical creatures and wonders of the world were displaying here at the misery, he said as he led me forward. After a few meters, he stopped again in front of another door I watched as he went through his keys once more. When the door finally sprang open, he invited me in for a gesture of grandeur. Well then, Mr. Stevenson, welcome to the Menagerie du Monde Magique, the very first part of the bizary. Here you'll find creatures from all around the world, mythological and fantastical, the likes you've never seen before. I had to fight the urge to laugh, not only at his acting, but at what he was proposing. In front of me was nothing but a huge, dirty, rectangular room. Cages lined the walls on both sides, some visible, others covered by blanks. Each one had a sign above it that told visitors what sort of creature they were supposed to be staring at. They were all cheaply made, giving the impression of crude scribbles on cardboard. I read through some and found one with cockatrice written on it. When Monsieur Delancey noticed me staring at it, he walked up to my side. Ah, the cockatrice, a most terrible creature. A single glance from its eyes is enough to kill you. Hence, we had to cover them up. A quick check on my phone told me what a cockatrice was supposed to be or look like. It was essentially a mixture of a snake and a rooster. I leaned forward and stared into the cage in front of me and almost burst out laughing. What I saw was a rooster, a rooster with what I assumed to be a rubber tail. Its body was covered in plastic scales, and his eyes, as Monsieur Delancey had said, were blindfolded. Interesting. I brought out, not able to hide, the little giggle that followed. Monsieur Delancey smiled and waited for me to go on. The next cage I stopped at was a bigger one, with a crude sign that said, Unicorn, above it. I already knew what was waiting for me. The unicorn, one of the most beautiful creatures in the entire world. This specimen here was caught in the far-off regions of the Caucasus, he began explaining. Instead of listening to his ramblings, I stared into the cage. The unicorn was what I expected. A white horse with a cheap plastic horn glued to its head. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I mumbled to myself. I continued on and stared at a few other cages. There was one with the sign Jackalope above it, containing a rabbit with a pair of cheap plastic horns in its head. Another one was supposed to be a griffin, but instead it was nothing but a cat clad in plastic wings and its face half covered by a plastic beak. The poor thing stared at me with a miserable expression on its face. Do you ever take all that stuff off, or do you keep them like this all day long? Didn't you say the place was closed down anyway? What might you be referring to, Mr. Stevenson? The costumes, I stated. The poor cat looks miserable. Monsieur Delancey just smiled at my remark, but chose not to answer. I made a mental note to include animal cruelty in the article. I continued past other cages, but stopped in front of a tank that said mermaid. The mermaid, a most prized possession. Unique only to the misery. As I peered inside, I saw a young woman sitting in waist-high water. She smiled at me seductively. I smiled back at her, and my eyes wandered down. A cheap fish costume made of rubber hid all of her lower body. She's sitting there all day? I implored the old man. Well, where else would she be? She gets vibe out of the water, mister Stevenson. This time I didn't bother to hide my laughter. <laughs> all right, sure. Whatever. I'd seen enough of this. Menagerie du Monde of Magique, and ignored the rest of the cages. Instead, I continued on to the end of the room where a row of doors awaited me. You sure put a lot of work into this, I said with a nod at the door. What's behind them? That, Mr. Stevenson, is a secret. You can only choose one of them. Yeah, sure. I bet they all lead to the same room anyway, I thought, shaking my head. To humor Monsieur Delancey, though, I pretended to reflect upon my choice. I walked up and down before I decided on the third one. All right, let's go with this one. The old man stepped forward and took out his keyring once more. When he finally unlocked the door, he led me inside. We entered another corridor, this one more constricted than the ones before, leading us around various corners. When we'd made it to the end, he began tinkering with his keys once more. I sighed. By now, the entire ordeal annoyed me. I was sure the old man thought it was part of the mystery, but I found it ridiculous. Finally, he pushed open the door and was about to go on another tirade about the mysteries that had awaited me inside. Before he could do as much as start, I pushed myself past him and stepped into the room. This one was smaller than the first one, much smaller. It seems your curiosity has overtaken you, Mr. Stevenson. The old man said, laughing as he followed me, what we've got here in this room are two creatures that couldn't be more different. He said with a low voice, there were two cages in the room, one small, covered by a blanket, the other huge and hidden behind a curtain. I sighed at the prospect of seeing more animals dressed in plastic wings and cheap props. He stepped up to the smaller one and pulled away the blanket. Inside I saw a small humanoid creature barely the size of my hand. What we've got here, Mr. Stevenson, is a thonic, earth-dwelling spirit one of the little people, or what might you know them as, gnomes. I leaned forward and the little thing stared at me with wide eyes before its mouth opened, and it squeaked at me in a voice I didn't understand. As it spoke, I could almost hear the crackling of a small speaker hidden in its mouth. I saw its mechanical movements, could imagine the turning cogs and gears "'as the small animatronic wobbled towards the front of the cage. "'When I focused on its face in the low light of the room, "'I was sure I saw stitches and seams. "'Very good. It looks almost real.' "'Once more, Monsieur Delancey said nothing "'and threw the blanket back over the cage. "'The little voice squeaked a few more times before it grew quiet. "'Be careful now, Mr. Stevenson.' I can only present you this creature for a mere moment," he said with a serious, foreboding expression on his face. Sure thing. Show me, I said. He opened the curtain and for a moment I could hear the rattling of chains in its back. As I peeked inside, someone jumped forward. I cringed back in shock when I saw the terrible costume the man was wearing. Jesus Christ! You stupid asshole! I yelled at the man and kicked against one of the bars in the cage. The man inside didn't react. Instead, he shuffled forward, mourning and grunting. When his eyes met mine, he began straining against the chains. Monsieur Delancey quickly closed the curtain again. A ghoul, Mr. Stevenson. A rare specimen from the southern deserts of Arabia. It was found in the ruins of the once prosperous city of... Yeah, 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 I, I get it. It's a freaking zombie. Well, you scared me. All right. Is that what sent Arthur Miller running away screaming? Was this what drove old Clint to jump off the bridge? Oh, no, Mr. Stevenson. You have it all wrong. You're the very first visitor to set foot in this room. There are many more things at the misery, many that no one's seen yet. Ah, All right, what do we do now? We go back and try one of the other rooms? I'm afraid there's only one room left for you, Mr. Stevenson. The last and final attraction of the misery. With that, he stepped up to the wall at the end of the room and got out a single golden key and opened the door I hadn't even noticed before. This time, there was no hallway. Instead, all that awaited me was a large, dark room What's this now? I asked, staring at the old man. Unease washed over me as I stared into the darkness. Was there something dangerous here? Don't be alarmed, Mr. Stevenson. There's but a single thing here. With that, a beam of light appeared in the room, shining on a small podium at its center. My eyes wandered around, trying to see if there was anything else hidden in the darkness. I remembered the investigation, though. They'd found nothing dangerous. It had all been fake, I reminded myself. Still apprehensive, I followed the old man, almost waiting for someone dressed up as another horrible creature, to jump me. Yet all was quiet, except for our footsteps, and I saw nothing but Monsieur Delancey in the small podium. This Mr. Stevenson is the most prized possession of the bizzery, He said, pointing at a small vial resting on the podium. I stared at it, and back at him, puzzled. What's that supposed to be? A magical drink? Some crazy drug? Look, if you've got some ayahuasca stuff here, or something I'm not interested in, you're not too far off, Mr. Stevenson. He cut me off. Yet, you've still got it wrong. What we've got here is the water of the Fountain of Youth. This time the laughter burst from my mouth in unrepressed waves. <laughs> all right, that's a good one, the best one yet. You start off with all those jackalopes and mermaids and ghouls. Now you've got some water. Here, spiced with God knows what. Yeah, this is all bullcrap. I think I've seen enough of Why don't you try it, Mr. Stevenson? This vial was prepared specifically for our last visitor. For you. Once more I laughed. What's it going to do? Make me a little boy again? Add ten years to my life? Oh, you're mistaken, Mr. Stevenson. You see, the legend of the fountain is wrong in many ways. The water doesn't have effect on your body, but on your mind. I shook my head. So I was right, it was drugs. Monsieur Delancey, though, went on to explain. Do you ever wonder why children see the world so differently? Here, he paused for a moment, waiting for me to interject something. But I was quiet, waiting for how this entire charade would play out. It's their imagination. As children, our brains can see the world how it truly is. When we're very young, we aren't restricted by logic or rationality. No, children can see all the wonders of the world. When we grow older, this ability becomes dormant and is pushed aside by our needs to adapt, to understand, and to make sense of things. Yet, there are ways to reawaken it, to gain back the ability to see the world with its eyes as a child. Let me guess, I said, laughing. This water will do the trick, right? When I said this, Monsieur Delancey grinned. It was the biggest grin I'd ever seen on anyone's face. Indeed? And let me guess. Arthur, Clara, and even old Clint drank it. The old man didn't answer. The grin on his face didn't waver. Instead, he just stood there staring at me expectantly. I scoffed again and shook my head. Then, reluctantly, my eyes wandered to the small vial. For a moment, it seemed to glister in all the colors of the rainbow, becoming a cascade of innumerable colors. Against my will, almost subconsciously, I reached out to touch it. When my fingers brushed against the glass, it began glowing faintly and the colors intensified, growing warmer and brighter. I picked it up and stared at it with wondrous eyes. How are you doing this? I asked, impressed for the first time. Well, Mr. Stevenson? I looked at him again before my eyes studied the vial again. It was barely a mouthful of water. Don't you want to get back your imagination? Don't you long for a world of wonder? As he said this, there was an almost supernatural pull, almost as if something in my brain was longing for it, as if it was reawakening. For a moment, a memory popped back into my head. I was a child again, staring at the few trees behind our house. Yet at the time, they seemed like a giant grand forest to me, a small dirt track leading past them to a road of adventure and mystery. How big the world had seemed then, I thought. How exciting! Without even knowing it, I popped open the vial. A second later, I spilled the strange liquid into my mouth. For a moment, I held it there, tasting it. But it was entirely tasteless. Then I swallowed it. And right at that moment, the surrounding darkness exploded into a kaleidoscope of colors. My eyes grew wide, my mind filled with images and visions. There was not just color here. There was more, feelings and impressions, ghosts and shades. It was as if this room encompassed the entire world, the sea of beauty and imagination. When I turned to Monsieur Delancey, he wasn't an old man anymore. He was a mythical wizard, clad in a robe of liquid colors. His face was a mask of radiant, glowing beauty. I screamed when I saw him, backed away and toppled over my legs. Now you see, Mr. Stevenson. For the first time, you can truly see. What the hell's this? What did you do to me? I brought out in a shaky voice. The misery of Monsieur Delancey, but now you're finally able to see it for what it really is. I was overwhelmed and had to close my eyes from all those radiant colors around me. I squinted, opened them again, but the ghastly, beautiful vision was still there, and so was the radiant figure of Monsieur Delancey. Drugs, it had to be drugs, I told myself as I turned towards the door. Freaking hell, why did I drink it? Why the hell had I drank it? Thank you for your visit to the misery of Monsieur Delancey. The radiant figure thundered from behind me. I stumbled through the door and crashed right into the cage containing the small animatronic. It shook hard and the blanket fell aside and once more the little thing began playing its squeaking sounds. Yet when I stared at it now, there was no hint of it being animatronic. There was no crackling speaker, no cogs or gears, no stitches on its face. As it rushed for the bars of the cage, there was no hint of its mechanical tumbling movements. Instead, the tiny figure moved as if it were real. Its tiny hands closed around the bars of the cage. It squeaked at me, an expression of misery on its face. When our eyes met, I knew this creature was alive. It was real. I cringed back in terror, screaming, and stumbled away from the room down the hallway and into the menagerie du monde magique. I'd barely taken a single step when I froze. What had been nothing but cheap fakes and silly illusions before were now real. There was no doubt each and every creature was real. The mermaid was beautiful, the iridescent scales glimmering in the water. Coyly, giggling, she splashed a bit of water against the walls of the tank. The griffin I'd seen before was bigger now, terrifying even. It hissed at me in a guttural mixture of bird and cat. For a moment it stretched itself and I could see its muscular wings spread out. I bathed in the glow of the unicorn's horn and stared into its endlessly beautiful sad eyes. The cockatrice was less a cock and more a serpent now, a slithering terror with a scaly body sprouting colorful feathers. In a mixture of wonder, I stumbled from cage to cage, staring at the beasts from mythology. I went back and forth, trying to take in as much as I could of the fantastical sights all around me. Eventually, the radiant figure of Monsieur Delancey entered the room. I'm afraid it's time to leave Mr. Stevenson, he said with a smile on his face. But, I started, about to protest, but his face had changed to a stern expression of seriousness. ''You'll find other things to marvel at,'' he said in a consolatory voice. ''The misery has to move on to a different place, to share the marvels of the world. But fear not, the world is visible to you again, visible in all its marvel and beauty.'' And with that, he slowly but resolutely pushed me toward the small hallway and eventually outside. The world that awaited me was a different place. It was ripe with colors, colors so bursting with life, I couldn't help but stare at everything with wide eyes. When I looked at the sky, it was of a blue so full, so bright, I'd see nothing like it. Birds flew past me, their feathers bright and beautiful. Everything looked different, felt different. As I walked back to town, I came upon other people. I almost grew angry when I saw them trudging on, eyes downcast, or right ahead at whatever destination they were going to. None of them looked at the beauty and wonder all around them. I don't know how long I walked, or for how long I stumbled through this magical place the world had become. Here and there I noticed small, mysterious creatures, strange animals that burrowed into the underbrush as I walked past them and tiny people hurrying away when they saw me. Sundown was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was as if the sky was a flame, alive with color. The golden light of the sun was like liquid gold that slowly cooled down, first into orange, then a deep red, as it swept over the horizon, an endless flood of dark crimson. Finally, as the glowing ball of the sun vanished, The crimson color was replaced by the night sky, yet I stared at it. I noticed, for the first time, how innumerable the stars were. It was almost as if the sky was filled with marbles of white, orange, and blue. I stared and stared and stared until someone stepped up to me. John, you all right? It was an acquaintance of mine, Mike Schmidt. You've been staring at the damn sky for what must have been a quarter of an hour? saw you standing there, staring up when I went into the grocery store. Now you're still here doing the same damn thing. Isn't that beautiful, Mike? I brought out looking up again. He, too, looked up for a moment before he turned back to me. It's the damn sky. What's so beautiful about it?" I opened my mouth to reply, but then I shook my head and walked away. Even though my house was nearby, it still took me almost a half hour to get home. Yet as I walked into the dark, staring up at the night sky, I noticed other things. The darkness of the night seemed darker than usual. The shadows between the houses Seemed a bit too jagged, a bit too distorted. A few times I even thought I saw them move, stretching out from an alleyway before they retreated again. I shivered and did the same thing I'd done as a kid. I told myself there was nothing there. Yet as an adult, that lie didn't work so well anymore. It wasn't so easily believed. I knew that I couldn't just close my eyes and will whatever I'd seen to go away. It's because I knew deep down inside that something was there. And so when I made it to my house, I looked over my shoulder once more. What looked back at me was a creeping shadowy figure, long black tendrils of purest darkness streamed down from the small alleyway it was hiding in, greedily stretching out toward the buildings on either side of it. For a moment it stopped... ...and a pair of dark red eyes came to rest on me. I jerked around in terror, got my keys out... ...and with shivering, sweaty hands unlocked the door and rushed inside. As I stepped into my dark hallway... ...I knew I wasn't alone. I saw the wallowing, moving darkness... ...that washed through it. I noticed a multitude of small, glowing eyes staring at me. In an instant... I hit the light switch and blasted the hallway in bright, burning light. The shadows retreated, crawled back to the furthest corners of the house, where the light wouldn't reach them. I inhaled, exhaled, and stood there, shaking. Each room and each part of the house seemed to be filled with these shadowy creatures. They were lingering between furniture, hiding under the bed, and sitting atop shelves and wardrobes. Only when I turned every single light in the house on, did I feel safe, or at least safe enough. There were still spots the light didn't reach, and there I saw them crouched together, staring at me and watching my every move. I tried the childish trick again, telling myself I was alone. Yet, knowledge is a powerful thing. As a kid, you can tell yourself you're just seeing things. There's nothing but your imagination. But as a rational, logical adult, you can't anymore. You know they're real. I didn't sleep that night. I couldn't. I forced myself to stay awake until the sun dawned. Then, only then, did I collapse on the bed. When I awoke, it was already late in the afternoon. The moment I stared out the window, I almost screamed at the sight that awaited me. Then the memory of the day before returned. Terror became wonder, and I marveled at the fantastical sights and saturated colors, colors so bright it almost hurt to look at them. Yet even now, as I looked outside, I saw those other things. Terrible misshapen creatures, hiding in dark corners and staring out from ghastly basement windows. They were there even during the day, waiting for the dark of the night when they could emerge, and then something happened. As I stared at it in abject wonder, the eyes of a disgusting, spidery creature focused on me, at first only for a moment before they trailed on. Then they jerked back, staring at me, probing me. In terror, I watched as the thing pushed itself outward until it barely touched the sunlight, staring at me with wide, hungry eyes. I realized what must have happened. It had noticed me, not just my existence, but it had noticed that I could see it. I jumped back and threw the curtain shut. That day I ventured outside again. Uh, While I marveled at the beauty and all the mysterious wonders that awaited me, the more I saw of them too, the dark hidden horrors of the world that had scared me as a kid. Those monsters under the bed, outside the window, and in our closets. And all of them noticed me too, noticed that I saw them. And they grinned at me in a mixture of anger and anticipation. For they knew that I could see them, that I knew they were real. I didn't last under their oppressive eyes. And before long, I fled back to my home. Locked the door, turned on every single light, and retreated to my living room. Yet, even as I sit here, even as I'm typing this, I knew they're there, and I know they're inching closer. I can see them behind the windows, vague shapes pushing against the glass. I can hear them under the couch, can see them in the dark corners of the room, and can almost feel their dark, shadowy tendrils reaching out to me they know i can see them and know that i understand what they are as kids we ignore them pretend they aren't real and so they move on for they have no power over us yet i arthur claire and even old Clint, know they are indeed real for we are adults we're logical and rational We know what's real and what isn't. those horrors, those horrors hiding in the shades, they don't like it. They don't want to be seen, don't want to be acknowledged. I know they're coming for me. I can hear them skittering around the room. I can hear their spidery legs, their shadowy tendrils. It's only a matter of time before they'll get me. Like they got old Clint, and just like they'll get Arthur and Clara everyone else who ever tasted that god-forsaken water. Be glad you've lost your childish vision. Be glad your imagination is gone. There's wonder out there, yes. But beauty also comes with horror, with darkness. And it's a darkness that will swallow you. I hope you enjoyed The Bisery of Monsieur Delancey by author René Rain as performed by yours truly. Some just can't handle seeing the world through the eyes of a child. My neighbor does it all the time, though. She keeps them in a drawer in her kitchen. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash rain. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash r-e-h-n. There's more frights to be had, no matter which social media you decide to see. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote be sure to let them know that you heard about them here on this program and that me, Otis Gyre, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Renee would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Cherry Channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Chieri. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett.